1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 3 to 10. And the whole issue and matter is having godliness with contentment and experiencing the great gain that comes from that. So hear the word of God. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. And may he bless it. Well, there is an age-old sin that I can reflect upon as a parent. And in reflecting upon it as a parent, it means I'm going to say something about our children. But I reflect on it because I often wonder, what was I like in my toddler years? How many of us can look back and say, I remember what my conduct was when I was two to four years old. And we, we might have a high ideal of how mature uh, we behaved in those times, but when we see other toddlers, when we see other parents dealing with and, and struggling with those years of challenging disobedience, we understand that is us as well. Uh, that we were part and parcel of those things in varying measures. But you know, this whole issue of discontentment, it is a young person's sin. It begins the moment a child really begins to walk and even before they talk. Discontentment is a sin that begins very early in life. This past week, I came across a little poem, if you will, entitled, The Toddler's Property Law. How many of you have heard of that? The Toddler's Property Law. It it, it has a, a continual refrain. It goes like this. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you lay it down, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) We see that lived out all of the time. And, and, but what you don't realize in taking a step back and looking at it is what you are seeing is the roots of discontentment 
that flow from coveting, that flow from greed, that flow from that very commandment that, that comes and meets us in the corruption of our sins, even from our childhood. Discontentment begins very early in life. And for the Christian, on the flip side of it, contentment is something that we need to grow in. It is something that we need to grasp and lay hold of in our life. If you were to go to Philippians chapter 4, and and reading there, verses 10 to 13, Paul interjects with uh, his uh, last minute, if you will, instructions to the Philippians and calling them to rejoice and helping them to understand how not to be anxious and worrisome in their lives. He interjects within this, uh, this whole matter of contentment in these verses. And that well memorized verse by most Christians, which is often taken out of context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is not saying that we can take up and do anything in our life because Christ will give us strength. What he is saying is that in the realm of contentment, learning to be content is something I can do because Christ strengthens me. And he says in those verses, verses 10 to 13, that contentment is a learned virtue. It is not something that falls upon us. It begins, we learn contentment from those early years from our faithful parents who rebuke and discipline us when greed lays hold of our our hearts and discontentment wells up in our lives. Think about it. How many times in in childhood are you you playing with the, the fires of discontentment when... You see your siblings get something and you don't. And how hard it is in that moment to be rejoicing for them and with them. It begins very early in life. And contentment is something we learn. It is acquired in our lives, as Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, through the various trials that we experience. Learning to be content when we are full. Learning to be content when we are in want. He says, I've learned whatever state I am in, therewith to be content because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ strengthens me. I know God has a purpose when He withholds something from me. God has a purpose when He gives aboundingly to me. And in both cases, I have to learn not to covet more than I have been given or not to covet when I am in want. And it is learned through the trials that we experience. We learn to rely upon the grace of of the Lord Jesus. And in learning that, we are putting to death the ungodly lusts and desires so that they don't control our actions. Because what always springs forth, first and foremost, from discontentment, it is grumbling and complaining. That's the first thing we do. And, and there is the response 
of these ungodly desires. And you see here in our text how Paul connects godliness with contentment. Again, he's focusing and taking us all back to that issue of living godly lives in and through the church before this world. We want the world to see that we are people of God and that the glory of Christ's salvation is working in our lives and showing to people a life of holiness and godliness. Next week we are going to see in verse 11 where to be pursuing these things in our lives. And you see him here connecting godliness with contentment in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He makes a case there on the flip side, it's implied there, that we can pursue godliness with discontentment (laughs) and fall back. I think there's several examples in Scripture of this. Not the least, Gehazi that we heard from already. A godly servant that helped Elisha in many ways and he stumbled (laughs) as coveting laid hold of his life. He thought in his heart, this isn't right. He provided a service to this foreigner in the name of the Lord. He should be receiving a reward. But really what he was saying is, I want some of that money and if Elisha doesn't want it, I'll take it. (laughs) Greed took over. Discontentment filled his life. And again, understanding what godliness is. Godliness is maturing where we faithfully bear the image of God in all knowledge, righteousness, and holiness so we love and serve God in our whole life and being. One of the Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian contentment. I think the title is very accurate. Rare meaning, it's a hard thing to get. (laughs) It's rare even among God's people. Contentment. Christian contentment. And he defines Christian contentment. I think it's the best definition. I think it's good for us to understand what does it mean to be content. And he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward quiet, gracious frame of spirit. You see, it's a heart issue. It's not an issue of what you have or don't have. It's an issue of the heart. It's that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You see what he's saying there is that if our heart is filled with the understanding of the goodness of God in all things, this frame of spirit enables us to freely and joyfully delight in what God has or hasn't provided for us in life. We delight in this. Because we know what God is doing for us. What He is working in us. And discontentment comes when that inward spirit is coveting. 
dissatisfied. And and here too, just as much as Paul connects contentment with godliness, look what he connects discontentment with. Discontentment is rooted in bad theology that works against godliness. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that bad theology promotes uh, this discontentment in life? And that's what he does in verses 3 to 5. He begins with those who are uh, not, not consenting to wholesome words, healthy words, words that will bring a health to your soul. They don't Uh, consent to this uh, and to the doctrine that accords with godliness. Rather, here's their character. Here's what they do. And, And they suppose that they can use godliness as a way, verse 5, as a way to gain, as a way to prosper their lives. Discontentment is rooted in bad theology working against godliness. And that's what produces those sinful desires that he speaks of in verses 9 and 10. Desiring to be rich, loving money, and and allowing that to control our lives. It roots us into such terrible sins. So we we look at, at verses 3 to 5 and we see that that error does lead to greed. That's the first thing to understand. Bad theology leads to greed, which fuels discontentment. And and this this is something that we see prevalent in our days by what we call at times the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement. But Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus because in Ephesus there has been this long history of using religion to gain. It was one of the things too, back in the uh, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, something similar arose within many churches. You've heard of those uh, pyramid schemes where somebody uh, hooks up with a company and tries to get everybody, everybody in the church to sign on under them so that they can buy all this product from, through them from this company. And, and companies love getting someone in a church because it's automatic. Their friends are going to buy something from them. Tupperware parties, etc., etc. You have all of these things where somebody says, you can make X amount of dollars, just invite your friends over, host a party, and you'll get all of this. And people are sucked in. They're sucked in by it. It's not just that that prosperity gospel movement. It it is also that, that way in which we manipulate godliness to gain. It's not a new phenomenon. It's an old work of Satan. We saw it with Gehazi. You go read on further in 2 Kings. It it fueled Ahab to murder a godly man so he could grab hold of his vineyard. But you, you come into Acts 
Then you see the church growing and spreading out uh, throughout uh, uh, Jerusalem and Samaria and, and, and whatnot. You get to Acts 8. Simon, baptized, professing faith, but he saw... He saw the ability to gain a power of the Spirit and he wanted to buy it with money because before in his godlessness, and I don't think he was converted, I think it was a false conversion, but he was using the mysticism of religion to prosper his life. And now he saw a new venue because why? Because everybody who was converted no longer came to him. He could no longer prosper off off of these people. And so he wanted to buy the Spirit with money. You get to Acts 19. Ephesus, where Timothy is. The history that was there. Why why did that riot occur when the gospel message came into Ephesus? It's because all of the silversmiths in their marketing and uh, utilizing uh, their trade to make all of these little idols of Diana were losing money. They were making money off of a false religion by making all of these... uh, idols for people to purchase. Christianity comes in, their wealth is gone. And so they create this riot against Christianity. That's part of the background in Ephesus. That's what Paul is seeing happening with these false teachers coming with their bad theology. And it doesn't stop there. If you look at the history of the Middle Ages, how did Rome build The Vatican City. (laughs) And it was mostly off the backs of poor people in the sale of indulgences. Buy this indulgence. Put a little bit of copper into that thing and, and, and you will have your sins forgiven. And the foolishness of bad theology created the prosperity the, the, the beginnings, if you will, of the prosperity gospel. And we see it today. Prosperity preachers who peddle the Christian faith for gain. And you know what, what Paul shows us in verses 3 to 5 is that they are easy to spot. And this is part of the guarding of our heart that we don't fall into that trap. Don't think yourself able to to prevent such coveting from welling up within you where the desire to be rich, the love of money, doesn't affect you. Don't think that this is outside of your life. And that's why he gives us an understanding of who they are so that we can spot it and understand how bad theology really produces this greed. They, you see in verses 3 and 5, one of the biggest things to see is they, they hate the truth. They don't look to the Word of God as directing their conduct and actions. They don't consent to wholesome words. They turn the doctrine that is meant to bring forth godliness into our lives, uh, they turn it around so that they can prosper from it. 
And specifically, you listen to how they speak about the Lord Jesus and His gospel. They, they don't have this full rounded understanding of why Jesus became a man. It is easy to say, you know, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and recognize He died on the cross for your sins, you'll, you'll be saved. It's easy to say that. But don't you ever step back and wonder, well, how does that happen? Where is the doctrine that speaks about why He became a man? Why it was necessary for Him to die on the cross? What did He do when He died on the cross? What did He fulfill on our behalf? What do we gain from the cross? What do we gain from His resurrection? What do we gain every day in our life from what He is doing in heaven for us right now? You see, when you listen to Him, you see all of that stuff is left out. And, and what that does is it doesn't put your reliance upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It puts your reliance upon what you do in your life. So we'll see that when we come to 2 Timothy, but he speaks about having a form of godliness without power. And that's what they that that's how you can see them. They do not speak the truth. They have haughty spirits, verse 4. <laughs> they substitute their ignorance of scripture and the gospel with mockery, sarcasm of those who would oppose them. And even more, what they do, and you see in the verse 4 all the little things that, they, that Paul lists there. They actually burden ignorant people with demands for money or uh, burden them with uh, their own lack of faith. I think it's one of the most shameless things when you hear a prosperity preacher say to someone, well, if you haven't been healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. You just need to have more faith. And, and while you're exercising, I, I actually, you know, this is one of the things that I heard a, a TV evangelist say, that if you send a thousand dollars to our ministry, we will be praying a tenfold response to you. All you need to do is believe and God will prosper you. Now that individual's net worth is over $700 million now. And where did he get that money from? From people who know not the truth of Christ. And, and that burden, if you didn't receive it, well, it's because you didn't exercise enough faith. <laughs> the problem's with you, not with me. You didn't believe God enough. And you see, the burden, the burden they lay on the backs of ignorant people. And this is where their haughtiness shows. <laughs> because what does Christ actually say? You who are heavy laden, come to me and what? I will give you rest. 
And it's in His meekness and lowliness that we receive from Him the grace and help we need to continue on in life when we are abased, when we are in want, when we are even in plenty. And not only that, these people are easy to spot because they're obsessed with disputes and useless wranglings that inspire envy, strife, blasphemy, evil, twisted suspicions. They're not there to show you the way of godliness and holiness. And underlying all of this is the greed factor for worldly gain. I am ever and always amazed that people actually respond to these kind of evangelists with huge amounts of money. And yet they do it because they manipulate. And what does Paul say about such? They're not hard to spot. What does he say at at the end of verse 5? From such withdraw yourself. You don't go down that path because they're not trying to lead you in the way of godliness that shows forth your growth and maturity in Christ. They're trying to bring you under their bondage. Turn away from them. Because Christ is not about us gaining in this world. It's not about us gaining material, monetary wealth. What he shows us in verses 6 to 10 is the great gain that does come to us with godliness and contentment in particular. The combination of these two things. Godliness is not purpose to bring a prosperity in your life that is focused on money and worldly gain. But it does bring a prosperity in your life that is heavenly. And again, when you look at other passages, you can see what is this gain that comes from godliness with contentment. Well, first and foremost, I would say the great gain is a mighty peace. You think about the world today with COVID and everything that is is mounting up against us. You think about how many people live in fear, walk in fear, have adjusted their life to, to meticulous measures because they are afraid of a virus that by all of the most uh, uh, generous statistics will still only hit about 5% of the people, at least in the Western world. 95% won't get it. And yet fear drives them. Does fear drive you? Does worry and anxiety fill your life? You haven't gained from godliness and contentment if that's the case. And there's where great gain comes because godliness with contentment brings a mighty peace. Again, read Philippians 4. Peace with God. Because I know, 
As, as the hymn says, I know that whate'er my God ordains is right. And He is Lord of my life. He exercises a sovereignty over my life that is beyond my comprehension at times. But I know He is right. He is good. He is just. He is merciful. And I am at peace with God. It brings a conquering hope. Again, you read in Romans 8.37, what does he say that we are more than conquerors concerning? We're more than conquerors concerning all the trials and tribulations, all of the suffering that we will face in life. We will face it. If you haven't experienced much suffering in your life, don't think you won't. (laughs) It will come. In this world, we will have tribulation. You can't help but have it. But how are you conquerors? We are more than conquerors. What does Romans 8.37 say? Through Him who has loved us. Through Christ who has given Himself for us, even unto death. The cursed death. Who has suffered beyond whatever I may encounter in this life. You know how we know that he suffered beyond whatever we have encountered in this life? It's because he suffered the punishment that we all have deserved. That our sufferings in this life as a believer are uniting us ever more clearly, dearly, and fully to the glory of God that is waiting for us in eternity. That wouldn't happen without our Savior having gone to the cross in our place. Because then our sufferings would be nothing more but a prelude of the eternal sufferings that wait for those destined for hell. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And it brings, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, an eternal weight of glory. Because if we go through our sufferings with our eye understanding both the sovereignty of God at work in our life and the providence of God leading us and maturing our faith, if we suffer with that in mind, he says these sufferings become very small in comparison to the eternal weight of glory waiting for us when we leave this earth. And you see, in this way, godliness with contentment, it shows that that Christians aren't looking to be self-sufficient in this life. We are looking to be Christ-sufficient. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When we set our eyes there. And and with that, with that we see him saying, here's, here's how it helps. It brings a humility concerning your life. Verse 7. We understand. We brought nothing into this world. How did you begin this world? How did Job say we began this world? Naked. (laughs) 
We came into this world not even with clothing. We at least in death, depending on on, uh, who cares for us when we die, we at least leave with clothing. (laughs) But we came into it with nothing. Wholly and fully dependent upon the providence of God, even for those who were our parents. And some of us didn't even have that for very long in life. It's a very humbling truth. You think about what Job did when all the trials came into his life and stole away from him all of his worldly goods and even all of his children. It says he fell down and worshipped God and said these words. Naked I came into this world, naked I shall leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a humble standpoint that understands that our life in this world is so brief that we are to be looking for eternity. And when we have this humility concerning our life, God has promised. This this is a truth that I, I encourage you to lay hold of, dear Christians. What is the truth? God gives grace to the humble. God comes and meets the humble with His loving kindness and His mercies. And with that, contentment with what God has provided. Verse 8, having food and clothing, with these we will be content. Is that your lot? I I always marvel. One of the things I know, I, I know a few people that as soon as a new phone hits the market, they're in line to get it. And, and I've asked a couple of them, well, you already have a new one. It's not even a year and a half old. Yes, but this is a new version. And they just want it. They just want it. And I wonder how healthy that is that we always want that next thing. But godliness with contentment, we understand God has provided for all that we have of need in this life. There is a meekness that comes and exercises this contentment concerning what we have in this life, concerning shelter, food, and clothing. God has supplied my every need. And godliness with contentment also brings a guarding in our hearts against greed. And you see that in verses 9 and 10. And again, this is something that begins right away with our own heart. You see, it's the opposite of what Gehazi did. Remember when we read that about Gehazi? It says he he spoke thus. He spoke to his heart. You should go after and take what Elisha, your master, refused. But these words remind us to speak to our hearts godliness with contentment. To speak to our hearts, Lord, guard me from desiring those things that you have not given. Guard me from an unhealthy love for those things that are in my power to gain. And a desire for riches leads to uh, a fall into temptation and snares of harmful lusts, great debts, 
other sins. I always see it as a, a tragedy when I hear Christians uh, sitting down to have the will of their dead family read. And how many families, Christian households, have been broken up because they didn't get something they felt they deserved. You see, you see all of these things. And what godliness with contentment, it comes to guard us against this greed and this coveting. They will drown you in ruin and perdition, he says there. And we have the examples of Judas and Ananias and Sapphira to see them drowned by death because of their lusts and greed. The love of money has made many Christians do evil things, from theft to lying to murder. And so we need to be guarded. And this is where the wholesomeness of of Christ and His Word comes to guard us. And so you see, godliness with contentment does bring great gain, not in a worldly sense, but in a heavenly sense. And didn't the Lord Jesus say to us, store up treasures in heaven. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be too. Oh, may the Lord guard our hearts and minds. In the Lord Jesus Christ, let's pray.